Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 14 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. So I spent a few minutes on last Wednesday's episode discussing and criticizing a move by the current U.S. government to lift regulations on Wall Street. Before that, I talked about the 2008 Great Recession and how President Barack Obama lifted the U.S. and probably the world out of it. I didn't think about it back then, but I realized that in today's hypercharged political environment, there's a chance that some people will make assumptions about my political biases because of my comments. I said something nice about Obama, so I'm a liberal, or I said something critical about the Trump administration, so therefore I hate Trump. That can drive people towards or away from this podcast. That's how polarized the world has become. This is not a political show, and I try not to make it opinion-based either. To be fair, I think last week was the first time in the history of this podcast that I even shared an opinion. But part of investing is to make decisions based on the political and legal climate. For example, several past administrations in the US and Canada have given tax benefits for those who invest in real estate, energy, and mining. When something like that happens, an investor might adjust her strategy. Or if one country introduces trade tariffs on another, that could have serious implications for certain investors. It only makes sense for me to discuss it on a podcast that's about investing. You're probably going to hear me talk about the news and all sorts of politicians in future episodes, whether it's Donald Trump, Justin Trudeau, Theresa May, Malcolm Turnbull, Xi Jinping, or otherwise. That's because these people and their staff have the power to shape the markets, which obviously impacts investors. I don't have any sort of agenda. All of my comments will hinge on policy, not personality or personal preference. I'm also only going to discuss facts and give opinions as they relate to the economy, the capital markets, businesses, the law, taxation, and other fields that investors might care about. For instance, as I made clear last week, I don't think that the US government should give banks the power to underwrite toxic mortgages using money from people's savings accounts, and then sell them to unsuspecting investors. The last time that was allowed, it caused the global economy to collapse. That was objectively bad for investors. People's portfolios fell by 30, 40, and 50%. I know a guy who lost $800,000 in a week because his derivatives positions imploded. And six months later, he ended up losing his house. As well, if I opine on a politician or a policy, please just interpret that in isolation. If I criticize Trump, don't take it to mean that I dislike everything about him or his government. It won't be possible to decipher my political preferences from this podcast. That's a conversation that we should have over a glass or three of whiskey. Okay, so I just wanted to get that out there before anyone starts labeling me a liberal or a conservative, or if anyone gets unnecessarily offended. But let's move on to bigger and better things. The topic of today's discussion is how mortgage lenders can manage liquidity risk. But as usual, let's get to some questions from our listeners. Remember, you can submit a question at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. 
This week, we have two questions. The first one comes from Tarek, who's in California. Tarek wanted to know whether cannabis REITs would make for good investments. He noted that the industry is growing and that it appears to be economically resilient. I actually regret not doing an entire episode on this because I think more cannabis REITs will emerge in the future. Now, to be clear, cannabis REITs and investment funds generally don't finance illicit operations. They aren't investing in illegal grow-ups and just hoping that they won't get caught and penalized. Rather, they finance businesses that operate legally in the marijuana industry. For example, I went for drinks with the CEO of a cannabis company a couple of weeks ago. The business is actually in the middle of listing on the stock market. They don't grow or sell weed. Instead, they take other people's weed and turn it into weed extracts like oil. So they're really just a service provider to marijuana growers. And like many other businesses, they rent space from a landlord. So this is the play for REITs. Lease real estate to companies that can legally profit from the cannabis industry. These could include medical marijuana growers and other companies that sell marijuana-related products, services, and technologies. The properties could range from office space to industrial greenhouse facilities to laboratories and traditional retail space. Tarek, I think that most analysts would say that investing in marijuana real estate is really just an indirect way of investing in marijuana. If the industry continues to bud, excuse the pun, then the value of the properties that are rented out to businesses that grow, extract, or sell it would probably rise. Landlords could probably charge more in rent. All of that would be good for investors who would likely see their returns grow like a weed. Trust me, I could do this all day. Now, there are obvious risks with marijuana investing. I have an article on my blog called How to Invest in Marijuana, a guide to getting high profits that talks more about this. You can just type the name of the article on Google and it'll pop up. The most obvious risk is that cannabis is federally illegal in the US and Canada, although it's expected to be legalized in Canada later this year. In the US, it's illegal on the federal level and in most states. The current Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, is deeply opposed to marijuana. If he started to crack down on the industry, it could cause problems for everyone involved. If weed companies started to shrink, it would presumably hurt landlords. Now, with that said, last Friday, President Trump indicated support for a congressional bill that would give states autonomy over their own weed laws. That would effectively take the federal government out of the equation. In my view, I think marijuana legalization is inevitable in the U.S. But whether it's tomorrow or in 80 years is another topic. Another thing to think about is that the supply of publicly traded marijuana real estate is limited. The first cannabis REIT, called Innovative Industrial Properties, didn't get listed on the New York Stock Exchange until the end of 2016. There aren't too many more out there, so your options are pretty slim. All right, so the second question for the week is from Barry, who wanted to know whether an LTV of above 75% automatically equates to high-risk lending. He noted that a lot of mortgage funds have a maximum LTV that they're willing to lend at, 
so Barry is trying to assess whether to avoid funds that might go beyond that. Barry, it's a good question. As a rule of thumb, I wouldn't view anything in the world of investments as automatic. There are always variables. But your question is grounded in reason. So let's back up for a moment to make sure that any new listeners have enough context to understand your question and then my reply. LTV is an abbreviation for loan-to-value. It's a ratio that expresses the value of a property when compared to its debt. It's important to mortgage lenders because if the worst occurs and they have to foreclose, they want to make sure that there's enough equity in the real estate collateral to be able to recoup their capital. For example, let's say that we have a $300,000 property with two mortgages on it. Each mortgage is worth $100,000, so there's a total of $200,000 of debt on it. We can get the LTV by dividing the debt by the property's value and then converting it to a percentage. So 200,000 divided by 300,000 is 0.66, which is 67%. If you don't remember high school math, we always round upwards. If either of the two lenders on the property had to foreclose, under normal market conditions, they could be reasonably sure that their capital will be protected. The value of the real estate could fall by over 30%, and there would theoretically still be enough equity to cover the loans. A dip of that size, for instance, might happen if the markets collapsed, or if the court ordered a fire sale. Now, to Barry's question, if the LTV was 75%, then the property would only have room to fall by 25%. The number 75% comes from a comment that I made last week, where I said that it's probably the standard among funds and private lenders. But what if we loaned at an 85 or a 90% LTV? Are we now in high-risk territory? It's important to remember that LTV is just one, albeit an important, factor in the due diligence process. But if you're lending to a person or a business with a great income and other bona fides, then you might be willing to go up in your LTV. Or perhaps you think the real estate market is going to rise, so you think the LTV will decline over time. There are plenty of other items that you might consider. Another one, for example, might be guarantees from other parties, along with other collateral pledges. We'll get to that in a later episode. So, Barry, what I'm getting at here is that you shouldn't look at any due diligence piece in isolation. For some deals, 75% may be way too low. For others, it could be more than enough. Okay, so let's do what we always do and recap some of the prior episodes. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage you to listen to the earlier shows too. I try to build on the content from each episode, so it might be hard to follow along if you're joining us right in the middle of a segment. Maybe rewind back to episode 10 and go from there. Right now, we're still building the foundations of mortgage lending so that we can later move on to other mortgage products like syndications, investment funds, mix, and ETFs, etc. In fact, both today's and the next week's episodes are going to be pretty useful for when we discuss bonds, too. We started the segment by noting that a mortgage itself is not a loan. It's a legal tool that's used to secure a debt against a property. 
the mortgage can stop the borrower from selling the real estate without repaying the creditor. It can also allow the creditor to foreclose and force the sale of the property if the terms of the requisite agreements aren't followed. Mortgages and other registered debts are repaid in chronological order. The first mortgage is paid first, the second mortgage is paid second, the third mortgage is paid third, and so on. This concept is called priority. However, the government can register a lien, which will often supersede other charges, if the property owner has unpaid taxes. For that reason, it's important to verify the borrower's tax position. Mortgage loans are popular investments because they can generate income through interest payments, fees, and penalties. Lenders will also usually require borrowers to reimburse them for all expenses incurred in connection with a loan, including legal costs. So if you have to hire a lawyer to do the deal, the borrower should have to pay for that. While mortgages can certainly come with risks, there are several ways to manage them. For example, we talked about using offer letters to mitigate origination risk. However, one risk that we didn't cover in recent episodes was liquidity. That is, you can't sell a loan with the same ease as you could a blue chip stock. So we're going to cover that in today's show. But before we do so, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Income Investing is sponsored by Pacific Income. Pacific Income provides financing to entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and small businesses in the U.S. and Canada. We lend as much as $250,000, and we're willing to consider deals that might be overlooked by traditional lenders like banks. We get that not all companies fit inside the box, because we ourselves are entrepreneurs. Get the capital you need to grow your business. You can visit our website at packincome.com. That's P-A-C-Income.com. Okay, so back to managing liquidity. For clarity, liquidity refers to the ability to sell an investment. For example, blue chip stocks are considered highly liquid because there are millions of investors who trade them. So if you need cash, you can log into your brokerage account and click sell. The term liquidity comes from one's ability to liquidate an asset for cash. One of the biggest problems with mortgage loans is that they can't easily be sold by retail investors. They're not very liquid. If you decide to fund a mortgage by yourself, you're probably going to have to hold on to it until maturity. That could be months or even years. If you gave a loan for two years, but suddenly need your money back right away, you could find yourself in a bit of a pickle. The borrower isn't going to pay you back just because she's nice. And even if she wanted to, she may not have the means to do so. Now, this is far less of an issue for larger lenders, who have the resources and the connections to sell their loans. But the chances are that you're not the CEO of a bank, and you don't run a big mortgage fund. So why are we going to spend an entire episode on this? While you might not take action on this material yourself, it'll form the basis for other investments that you might consider. These can include bonds, debentures, money market products, and other credit instruments. It's also key to how a lot of bond funds, mortgage funds, MREITs, and credit funds run their businesses. So the first way to manage liquidity risk can be used by anyone. You simply add a clause in the promissory note or the loan agreement 
that allows you to demand immediate repayment of the loan at any time and for any reason. That is, you just have to tell the borrower that you want your money back right away. If she doesn't pay up, you foreclose on the property. As such, you might recoup your money within days, weeks, or months. It isn't perfect, but it's better than waiting for years. Obviously, there are problems with this strategy. First, it's pretty brutal to the borrower and can cause them serious damage. I know a guy who ran a multi-million dollar real estate development, which almost immediately collapsed once the bank called in the loan. While he was good in his payments, it was during the Great Recession. The bank got nervous about the economy and called in most of the commercial loans in the region. As such, his debt got sucked out from under his feet. He and all of his partners were wiped out. While the clause may seem harsh, it's very common. If you have a bank loan, for instance, the immediate repayment clause is probably in the contract that you signed. The bank could one day send you a letter demanding that you repay it. If you don't repay it, it can wreak havoc on your financial situation. The second problem with the clause is that it doesn't guarantee immediate repayment. In the best case scenario, the borrower has the cash and writes you a check upon receiving your demand. But that's probably not likely. Instead, she might have to find another source of financing to pay you out, or will ask you to wait for a couple months until she can come up with the funds. Most lenders will be willing to wait instead of going to court. However, if you do choose to foreclose, the process can take weeks or even months. As well, if there isn't enough equity in the property when you foreclose, say prices fell recently, then it won't do you much good. You might be ruining an otherwise performing asset. Therefore, the immediate repayment clause can help lenders deal with liquidity, but it's far from perfect. The more practical way to manage liquidity risk is to sell the loan to someone else. For example, if you have a $30,000 loan, you simply sell it to another investor for $30,000. That way, you recoup your capital and the investor now owns it. He has all of the rights to the debt, including receiving monthly payments and having the ability to foreclose. You'll recall from an earlier episode that loans are usually executed by signing a promissory note or a loan agreement. These contracts are assets. They're securities. They're property. They can be bought, sold, assigned, and transferred, just like anything else. The only difference between you selling me furniture or kitchen appliances and selling me a promissory note is that there are strict laws that govern how and to whom securities can be sold. But at the end of the day, both transactions will require you and me to sign a purchase and sale agreement. There's a multi-trillion dollar market of loan contracts. Banks, investment funds, credit funds, mortgage funds, money market funds, bond funds, sovereign wealth funds, brokers and investors do business in it every single day. You can access some of it yourself in your online brokerage account. For example, when you invest in a corporate bond through your brokerage, you're buying a debt that a company owes to someone. Once upon a time, a lender gave a loan to that company and then later sold the contract to another investor. As such, he liquidated his asset and somebody else owned the contract. 
it was probably purchased and sold thousands of times before it landed in your hands. You, as a latest bondholder, own the contract. You can earn interest payments from the company, and you have the power to enforce the agreement. It's as if you made the loan yourself. Debts of all sorts exist on the market. You can buy consumer loans, auto loans, credit card loans, timeshare loans, and mortgage loans. Just about any sort of debt you can think of. If you buy a new stove or a refrigerator on a payment plan from a large company, there's a good chance that it'll sell the financing contract on the market. An investor then buys that debt and collects your payments, while the company gets the entire refrigerator paid for. It's an important part of our economy because it provides liquidity to creditors. You get your fridge, the company gets its invoice paid immediately rather than waiting for your installments, and the investor earns whatever interest is charged on the payment plan. It's so seamless that the consumer doesn't even know about it. Keep that in mind the next time you get a credit card, a car loan, a line of credit, mortgage, or anything else that causes you to owe money. There's a chance that the debt will be sold off to an investor, like another bank or a fund. To be clear, the debt market is not always a formal place. It's any group of people or businesses that is willing to buy and sell debt contracts. OTC markets or over-the-counter markets and exchanges are regulated by the authorities. They're also operated by brokers, dealers, and other financial professionals. That's where you'd usually buy corporate and government bonds, for example. They're connected to brokerage accounts, and the process is streamlined. But if a bank sells $500 million worth of mortgage loans to an investment fund in a private sale, there was a market for their deal. It was comprised of two companies. Now, the problem for smaller lenders is that their market is tiny. They simply don't know enough people to whom they could sell the loan contract. They may have some friends or family members who'd be willing to consider buying it, but that's about it. As such, it's harder for individual lenders to sell their loans and gain liquidity. To complicate matters further, they'd also have to do so in compliance with securities legislation. That's an entire separate kettle of fish, which we won't cover on today's show. Larger investors have relationships with banks, brokers, dealers, underwriters, clearing agencies, trust companies, and lawyers who can make a debt market for them. For instance, they can list their contracts on exchanges and OTC markets. Or they can do so through private sales. For example, although I'm nowhere close to being an institutional investor, I work with various real estate finance lawyers, dealers, and mortgage brokers because of the nature of my business. As such, if I ever needed to, I could probably find a buyer for my promissory notes through my connections with them. They would create a market for my contracts. So let's illustrate the debt markets from a large investor's perspective. We'll say that an investment fund called ABC Mortgage Fund needs cash for whatever reason. As such, it decides to sell some of its mortgage loans. It gathers a big stack of promissory notes, which collectively have a principal value of $20 million, and hires a securities broker to sell them. The broker studies the loans and thinks that they're of such high quality that it could sell them to investors for $21 million. A month later, the broker sells the promissory notes to its clients for $21 million. It charges a 3% commission, 
so it earns $630,000 for its services. The remaining $20,370,000 goes to ABC Mortgage Fund. As such, it got the liquidity it needed. The new owners of the promissory notes can now collect the balance of the loans and enjoy the income from them. Everyone wins. You'll also recall another example of liquefying mortgage loans from a couple of episodes ago. Before the Great Recession, several major banks in the U.S. sold off their toxic mortgage loans to investors. But instead of selling each contract individually, they bundled thousands of them into investment products like collateralized debt obligations or CDOs. As such, when the loans started to fail, the investors, not the banks, were left holding the bag. Of course, ironically, the losses were so devastating to the economy that many of those same banks suffered anyway. Now, just a minute ago, I gave the example of investors buying $20 million worth of promissory notes for $21 million. Next Wednesday, we're going to look more closely at that transaction. At first glance, it might appear that they overpaid. Our conversation's going to lead to terms like coupons, yields, and face values. We'll also get into the rights that buyers of debts have. And if we have time, we'll tie it into those awful phone calls that you get from collections agencies when you forget to pay a $30 parking ticket. Because you guessed it, parking tickets can trade on the debt markets too. Thanks for spending your time with me. I'd be grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or SoundCloud, and help me get the word out there. I'll see you in a week. 